<clears throat> so, good evening to you. <clears throat> Let yourself sit comfortably, as you, as you can, in a pew anyway. Brother David and I were invited this evening to speak in the in some way the suggested topic besides some dialogue from the Christian and Buddhist point of view was to focus on death and dying and that process that's so much a part of life. And I think about it to begin and wonder what I might say or really what anyone might say um, in some way, I don't know very much about it. It's a kind of a mystery. Um, and I wonder if anyone does. A very strange thing, dying, um, and how we hold it. There's a friend of mine and a person I, I have a lot of respect for, um, one of the people I know who has AIDS. And even though in some ways it's kind of tragic, uh, certainly tragic for many people. This particular individual is one that many others go to to be cheered by, or they go and they spend time with this person, and they come away enlivened, or heartened, or, or awakened in some part of their heart or their being, even though he has AIDS. It's a very strange kind of mystery about death. We have all these views, it's a tragedy or a, a wonderful thing in some ways, or a wondrous... I'll read you something to begin with. An ad that comes out of the newspaper in Berkeley. It begins, want to be rich, really rich? Let's face it, the only way to truly ridiculous wealth is to be born into it. Unfortunately, we've pretty much blown it this time around, but what about next time? Now there's a way. <laughs> the reincarnation connection next lifetime guarantee. <laughs> we guarantee that you will be reincarnated into incredible wealth or your money back. <laughs> And it goes on from there where you can send your $15 and so forth. I'll leave it up here for any of you that are... <laughs> there are all these different ways that we try to grapple with this fact of death, this fact of the beginning and endings of things. A friend of mine who is a teacher of young children took her six-year-olds out into the woods one day because they were asking about death, some animals that died and uh, pets and so forth, and they were going to study death. And they went out and spent an afternoon in the woods collecting things that had died, leaves and um, fallen logs and uh, uh, the skeleton of a frog that someone found and certain other bones and um, uh, mushrooms that were dying. And, they brought back all these dying things and they were just looking at it as curiously as children do, trying to understand what that was and place it in some way in their life. 
And again, as children do, they saw it in a kind of natural way. And she asked them, she said, do you think this is really a, a part of life? Should it be? And they said, looks like it is. And she said, well, what do you think would happen if there wasn't dying and death? And one of the kids looked around and said, well, there'd be more and more and more trees and everything, and there'd be no room for us. That process of dying and renewal is really what we are. I mean, it's the nature of, of life, and it's a kind of mystery that we all grapple with. I had a person come to me for counseling, a woman who lived in Santa Cruz. And the man, her husband, that she, man she lived with, her husband, um, had died uh, of suicide not long before she came to see me. And it was a very difficult circumstance. There was uh, two children in the family and a lot of, or three children, and a lot of... Uh, things that were incomplete, as such a death can often mean, um, and a lot of sorrow, a lot of bewilderment, and a lot of pain. She lived in a place, Santa Cruz, that had a very rich spiritual uh, community, and was connected with that, and got a great deal of support from people, from her friends in Tibetan practice, and Sufis, and Christians, and so forth. And they made food, and took care of the children, and comforted, and helped in, even in her grieving. And at one point, a month or so after this had happened, she met a friend who was a Tibetan practicing, who had loved her husband, and he said, you know, you don't have to worry about him, because I've been reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead every day and doing my meditations, and I saw him, and he is in this realm of the bodhisattva, of the green... Um, uh, the, the green light and uh, this particular dimension of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and he's just fine. She heard this and it was, it was cheering or heartening. Well, sometime later that week, she ran into another good friend who did Christian practice, mystical Christian, and he came up to her, he was so excited, he said, you know, it's really fine. I have seen him, and he was with the White Brotherhood. I was, did my meditation, and I entered this realm, and I saw him. And so she got confused, and she called an old teacher of hers who was in a very, another tradition um, just to ask about her husband. And without saying this, he said, Oh, it's fine. He's already taken birth. He's in a, I mean, taken reincarnation. He's in a womb of a, a woman in the Los Angeles area, and he's going to have a female body next time. And over a period of two weeks, she got four very convincing answers, which didn't convince her at all, as you could imagine, but left her in a rather um, confused state. And so she came to talk, talk together with me, and I listened to those. Um, and it's the kind of mystery of why, uh, in those near-death experiences that are written about, some people die on the operating table or whatever for a little while and see Jesus and some might see Buddha and why is that? Um, I don't have some explanation but she said well what, what is right about this? And what tradition can I believe? And what can I follow that I know? 
And it wasn't intellectual, it was very close to her heart. What could she believe? To ease the pain and to face this big hole in her life and to touch this mystery. And as we talked and I listened and so forth, I asked her at one point, I said, suppose you were to let go of all of the spiritual things you've ever heard, all of the teachings and all of the um, writings and, and so forth, and suppose you were to look inside to your own heart and ask, what do you actually know yourself? What do you know so sure that even if the Buddha or Jesus or all of them came in and said, no, it's not true, that you know it for so certain that you would say, yes, it is. And we kind of meditated together for a bit. And she looked, and one of the things she said she knew was that everything changes. She said, I don't know much, but I know that whatever I see that's born or whatever is created seems to change in its form. And I listened to her, and I said, you know, perhaps, perhaps that's enough. Perhaps just to know that peace and to really know it in your heart and to begin in some way to live that is more full and more important than having all of the ideas and spiritual systems that you might have. In a way, death becomes a kind of mirror for us. It reflects our beliefs. Do you know the story of Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi master and fool and comedian and whatever all rolled into one he went into the bank one day to cash a check and uh, the teller asked him could you please identify yourself so he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a mirror and he said yep that's me all right <laughs> and what we do with big questions like love or like who am I or like death is we it's a reflection we put we take our fears and our unknowing and we try to put some balm on it some sob to ease it and we put our ideas on top of that mystery we want to understand now it's interesting in the Buddhist tradition the Buddha gave a number of answers about what happens in terms of dying and I'll just speak of a few of them I get about 20 minutes or half an hour to talk and then brother David will and then we'll all kind of talk together so at one point the Buddha talked a lot about rebirth and somebody said well if there isn't some soul because the Buddha didn't speak in terms of a soul but a changing process how can you understand rebirth and his answer was if you plant an apple seed you get an apple tree and not a mango tree Yet, when the tree grows and blossoms and a new apple is created and you cut it open and take out the seed, is that second one the same as the first? Not exactly. Is it different? Not exactly. One moves into another as life cycles, not replicating itself identically, but being more like a stream that flows. There's a process or movement. And similarly between lives with death and there is a rebirth in the same direction, in the same pattern. That was an answer he gave sometime. 
Um, and it's kind of a mediocre answer, if you ask me. He gave a better answer. At another point, someone said, what is the nature of death? And he looked back and he said, there is no death. Death is not true. You believe that you're this body. If you think I am this body, certainly the body dies, but it's not who we are. And in fact, what we are or who we are is timeless. And we rent this body. You get it for a little while from Hertz or something like that, you know. And you pay your dues for it also. I mean, monthly payments. And you have to take care of it and so forth and, and honor it. But in the end, if you believe this is who you are, you're mistaken. And you'll, you'll find that out, I think. And to the extent that you grasp it, to that extent will you suffer. So the Buddha said a much deeper level of truth is there was no one born and there's no one that dies. There's just this appearance of separation, but in fact it is a dance where there's nothing separate, where it's all one. And we just seem to be separate looking at one another, but really I'm Brother David speaking now. (laughs) That's a little better answer as the Buddha goes, but there's a better answer still, I think. A man came to the Buddha one day and he asked, he said, you're a Buddha, right? The Buddha said, yes, I am. He said, good, I have some questions for you. He said, I would like to know what happens when you die. And the Buddha, being a useful teacher, asked some questions back. Well, for what purpose would you like to know? And the man said, well, if I know that, then I'll know better how to live my life. You know, is there heavens or another life or isn't there. And the Buddha said, tell me, my friend, suppose that there are many lives, suppose that that's true, how would you want to live your life? And the man thought about it and he said, well, I'd want to be kind to people because it feels good to be kind and also because it makes good karma. It would mean people would be kind back and in another life I would have people who liked me around me or so, the law of karma would teach. And I'd want to be somewhat generous with things. It's nice to give things away. People like it. But also, it would be the cause for being reborn into incredible wealth or whatever that ad was. It it would be the source of bounty coming back by putting that out in the universe. That would return. And I'd want to be aware. I'd want to pay attention. I'd learn things from it in this life, but also it would be the seed for living wisely in the future. That would bring a kind of insight or wisdom that would carry. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend, and received that with great appreciation. Then he said, now tell me, suppose that this is it. You just get one shot, one life, and at the end it's over. How then would you live? And the man thought about it. And he said, well, I'd want to be kind to people because it feels good and they're kind back and it's just a wonderful way to live and if this is the only time I can live I'd really want to be able to love them and I'd certainly want to be generous since you can't take it with you if this is it and again it, it creates a, a bond and a, and a caring and, and a great deal of happiness for oneself and others and I'd certainly want to be aware because if this is the only dance I want to savor it I want to touch it and taste it and experience this with as much awakeness as I can. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. And that was the end of their dialogue.
And to me that's the most mysterious and wonderful of his answers because it doesn't, it doesn't paper over that unknowing or that mystery. This gathering was called the Sure Heart's Release on the flyer, which comes from a phrase of the Buddhist teaching. At one point he said, the purpose of the spiritual teachings in Buddhism is not for good deeds or making merit or, or uh, concentration or quieting of the mind or kindness or even understanding and insight. None of those is the reason for the teaching of a Buddha. But the only reason is for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the purpose of spiritual life and spiritual practice. And in that, he meant the release from the past and the release from the future and the release from our ideas and things that keep us from actually touching the mystery of our life from one moment to another to another. And so the purpose of the spiritual teachings wasn't to accumulate something, some new knowledge or some new way, but really was to let go, was to find some, some spirit that is in each person here of inner freedom and joy and uh, wonder and mystery. And that is what meditation really teaches as well. It teaches feeling the breath come in and out like the seasons, or feeling the heart open and close. It doesn't stay open all the time, in case anyone's been looking for that. It's, it's like these beautiful roses. It opens for a while and it closes when it's cold out. You know what I mean. In your family or your world around, and it opens again. Um, and really what it teaches is the movement of life. It teaches that mystery of the cycling, of the breath, of the feelings, of the heart, of the mind. And that movement is natural. That is what we are. That's who we are. It's what's supposed to happen. Death is supposed to happen. It's actually what's supposed to happen. You get the ticket when you come in and they tear it in half at the movie theater. Remember that? And you get to keep half of it. One half is being born, the other half is dying. You turn that in at the end. It's natural. And my teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to say, for those who don't understand death, which means those who haven't looked at it and seen its truth, life is very confusing. It remains confusing because you're running away and trying to avoid do all these things to not feel pain or to not die or not face mortality or change when what's happening is happening all around us. Now, I don't mean to say that it's easy. I was talking with Stephen Levine, who I've taught with and is a good friend, and as you know, he, like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, is kind of one of the great, now one of the great national experts on death and dying, and with all these people who've died and so forth. Um, and his mother died last year. And I said, how was it for you that your mother died? And he said, it, it was different, and it, and it was... And it was hard, you know, and that was after a thousand deaths. He said, it was my mother, and it wasn't so easy. My father was in the hospital for a very severe heart attack in ICU for six weeks and open heart surgery, and they gave him a 10% chance of surviving. 
uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and it was very hard for me. And I accepted it in some ways, but also it brought up such deep feelings of loss and, and uh, grief and things that were unfinished that I wished that I'd said and have now fortunately had an opportunity to say because he survived. Um, and I remember when I first heard I was carrying my baby who was then very small and really didn't know him very well and I was about to take a plane to fly to the hospital and I started to talk about him and say you know your grandfather is very sick and you don't know him and he may be dying and I wish you could get to meet him and talk all about him to her and I just started to weep and I cried and I cried and it wasn't for her really because she didn't even know him she didn't know him from Adam it was for myself but it was like she became the crystal, the seed in that saturated solution that let my heart open and just weep and cry. I'm going to tell a couple more stories and then finish up if I, if I may. I was called some years ago by a friend who asked me to come and visit her brother in the, the hospital at UC Medical Center who was uh, in trouble in some way. And so I came to see this fellow and he was about 38 at the time um, and he was a successful businessman, contractor who built some big developments, had lots of money, a great big sailboat, a ranch, uh, a big house in the city and so forth. He'd done a little spiritual practice in his early life a little bit of Zen, a little LSD, a little, you know, in the 60s, whatever one did in those days, right? Um, and then he dropped it to become a businessman. And 20 years later or so, he was driving his car and he blacked out. And the upshot was after testing and stuff, he had a brain tumor. And it was, um, with the biopsy, it was melanoma, which is a very rapid growing kind of cancer. And it was uh, that day, after they brought the results of the biopsy back, they said to him, you know, this melanoma is in the area of your speech and understanding center. If we don't operate, you probably have six weeks to live with this tumor. If we do operate, you will have a good likelihood of losing all ability to, to read, to write, to speak, to, to understand any language. We would like to operate tomorrow. Please tell us. So I went to see this man that evening, and he was in an extraordinary state. And in a way, it was a state of grace as well. He was so alive. I walked in that room, and this was someone who was so alive. And all that he wanted to talk about was spiritual things. It wasn't what he'd done or his success or money or something. You can't change that at the exchange booth between when you get to when you get to the big traveling they don't take your um, gold car American Express or whatever it is the only currency that is of any value is the currency of your heart what you know in your heart and what he drew on actually was the little bit of meditation that he'd done years ago or was the little bit of reading he'd done and we had very deep spiritual kind of conversation it was wonderful and then he told me, he said, you know, I see today how precious life is. I, I take a drink of San Francisco tap water in this hospital, and it's so sweet. It just is so amazing to drink water. Or I look at these pigeons, you know, there's p 
pigeon poop on the windowsill, and you can tell I'm a three-year-old, and, and uh, the pigeons, and he said, and I watched them leap off the windowsill and glide into the air, he said, and it's such a magic thing to see a bird fly. And after we talked for a while, he said, you know, maybe enough words in my life, maybe I've talked enough. And so he decided to have the operation. And it was very long, 18 hours with a famous surgeon, and the next day his sister went into the recovery room to see him. And he opened his eyes when she came in, and he looked at, him, looked at her and he said, good morning. And in fact, the operation was successful in removing the tumor without taking away his speech. And from that day, his life was different. His life was different because his whole set of values had changed. And although he continued to work to some extent, he didn't throw away his business, he actually became someone who counseled other people who had cancer. And he became someone who was involved in really important ways in his community and in the spiritual community. Um, and he lived from a place in his heart that was touched by that experience that was that was transformative and extraordinary. Now what spiritual practice teaches in Buddhism, perhaps in any tradition, is also what's called to die before death, which is to say to face this fact of our mortality and not wait till the end so that you can live fully. Because when you get near the end, if you've lived any kind of spiritual life, there are only a couple of questions you you find people asking, did I live fully, is one, and did I love well? And what else really matters? Was I able to love well? Or perhaps, did I learn to let go, which is related to loving, honestly? Because um, if you don't learn it prior to that, you have what's called a crash course. You learn it very quickly. And ours is a society which is afraid of pain, and afraid of darkness and the shadow, and afraid of discomfort, and afraid of death. We dress corpses up like they were going to some party. You know, and we hide old people away in old age homes, or all kinds of things. We want comfort and we don't like to look at things. In India, and you're in Benares, and a dead body is revered, but it's clearly a body, it's not that person. And we have an addicted society. I mean. 10 million drug addicts and 20 million alcoholics and I don't know how many workaholics and, and people, we keep ourselves busy to not feel, to not see, to not touch. And what's required if we want to face death is really the same thing that's required in facing life, is to face um, who we are and, and this changing world with our hearts. To live well and to die well are the same. There's this Wonderful poem from Kabir. We I read that. He says, Friend, hope for the truth while you are alive. Jump into experience when you are alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break your ropes while you're alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten that's all fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an empty apartment in the city of death. 
But if you make love with the divine now, in the next life as well, you will have the face of satisfied desire. Wonderful poem. To let ourselves feel, Suzuki Roshi, Zen master, said when he was dying, if when I die I suffer, it's all right, you know. That's just suffering Buddha. No confusion in it. Maybe everyone will suffer from the physical or spiritual agony, but that's all right. We should be grateful to have a limited life. What an amazing thing to say. If I suffer, it's all right. That's just suffering. Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, Happy Buddha, Sad Buddha, being born as a Buddha, dying as a Buddha. That is the, the spiritual teaching in Buddhism, is some touching that and coming to terms with it. Not with an ideal, not with some thing of perfection, but really moment to moment, kind of feeling your way through. And when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross heard her speak at one point not long after she'd worked out all those stages of death and dying, there's grieving and there's bargaining and there's denial and there's anger and all the things that people go through. She said after she had worked that out with people over many years, she got into wanting to them to die in the right way, to work them through their anger and not to be in denial and let them grieve so that they could die properly, right? I mean, now you know how to do it, you've got to do it right. And she said, even more difficult than learning the steps and the stages of grieving was letting go of it and realizing that each person had to live in their own way and had the right to die in their own way. And some people would die angry, and that was their way. And some people would die denying to the last moment, and some would die with understanding or sweetness and somewhat bitterness. And I think all of that falls under the practice of acceptance and forgiveness. The forgiveness that we've withheld for so long in our life from one another. Who do you need to tell that you love them? From ourselves? From the world that in a way we have to forgive because it doesn't do exactly what we would like? And if we can live in that place of appreciation, like that man who saw the glass of water or the pigeon on the windowsill as this incredible mystery, if we can forgive in that way each day, um, then whatever we could do to prepare ourselves for death, that would be it. Please. Thank you. That's very moving. I've uh, just arrived from New York this afternoon and I stayed there in the apartment in which my mother used to live, who died a year and a half ago. 
and her, her cat is still alive and is still living there. The cat played a very important role in my mother's last years, uh, was a very faithful companion. And uh, actually, the only time that uh, my mother wept uh, during those two months, it was a very short time from, from, uh, from the time that she was still very uh, much alive and active and traveling and working uh, every day very hard <laughs> to the time when she when she died were just about two months and the only time that you and i was with her almost all that time we might have an opportunity to talk about that later but uh, that was a great blessing for me but the only time that i saw her weeping during this time was when she was trying to decide about the fate of the cat. <laughs> that was sort of the little catalyst that allowed this to happen. And so the cat is still t- there and we talk about my mother when I see the cat. <laughs> <clears throat> and of course I'm, I'm reminded of that uh, great experience and that great blessing uh, to have been. Uh, have had the opportunity to be with uh, my mother. Actually, uh, the only uh, members of my family that I have been with when uh, they died uh, was my mother, my mother's mother, and my mother's mother's mother. When I was seven years old, six or seven years old, uh, I happened to be the only one at home when my great-grandmother died and I was with her, and uh, she was quite well. Uh, she was 84, I think, and she was quite well at the time. And then that evening, she wasn't feeling so well, and she sent me away. And then I was the last member of the family that saw her, and then she died. And with my great, uh, my grandmother, I was present when she died together with my mother. And then I was also there when my mother died. So that that was a a great blessing. Very different from the time when I was with, from my father's death. My parents were separated, although they were reconciled uh, uh, with one another before, uh, long before their death. But uh, they, they, one lived in America and my father lived in Europe. So I spent, uh, when we knew that my father was dying, I spent a week with him, with my brother. Uh, with one of my brothers. And uh, and then at the end of that week, we knew that we would have to leave back for America now the next morning. And uh, uh, it was was humanly certain that we would not see my father again. So he was still quite well. He was actually well until the very end. He had a kind of cancer where he had uh, very little pain, if any, and and died quite suddenly at the end. so he was up and around and we were talking with him and that last evening he wouldn't want to let us go so in order to keep us keep us staying and keep us staying until long after midnight he was telling one joke after the other (laughs) because you you can't just in the middle of a joke say that well now really we have to go Please fast forward at this time and continue on side B.
he told about this man who was crossing the street and he hears this voice uh, this is careful there's a car coming uh, so he looks really there's a car coming and uh, uh, he's wondering who, who warned him here and then he goes on and again at some other street crossing some little voice is careful and he watches and sure enough there was again some danger and uh, so he says well who are you I'm your guardian angel. Well, where are you? I'm sitting on your shoulder. So he says, well, have you always been here? Yes, all your life I was here. Uh, I'm always watching over you. So the man says, can you also sit on my hand? <laughs> uh, he's invisible. So the little boy says, yes, I'm sitting on your hand now. And the man makes a fist and grabs him and Give it one blow after the other. Where were you when I got married? <laughs> but of course I'm glad that they got married. Then another very strange thing in, uh, in this context. Uh, my father died very shortly after that. But by that time, and he had a very peaceful death, just like my mother, I'm very grateful to say. And just at that time, I was in Hawaii. And I got this telephone call that my father had died. In Hawaii, it was still the 20th of June. And in, uh, in uh, Austria, it had been the 21st of June when my father died. It hadn't caught up with us yet. And so I talk, talked with uh, my relatives and my brothers and with my mother. And then I had a, a very short time after that, I had to get on a plane and fly to Australia. So I left Hawaii on the 20th, and it was not yet the 21st, and I arrived on the 22nd. So the day on which my father died never arrived for me. Mm. I think that's a most interesting and most unusual thing. You know? There's really something very mysterious behind that. And I'm sure uh, many of us will, would be able to tell things like that about, uh, about in the context of death and dying. Because when we reach this threshold and this important area, of our aliveness. Uh, as Jack said, we become so much more alive at that point, and therefore all sorts of things happen to us that, um, um, or we are aware, maybe we should say, of all sorts of things that otherwise we wouldn't be aware, but very strange things happen to us in that, at that time. And that's one of my, one of the things that I feel we should pay attention to and we should be alert to and some of it can be probably best uh, touched upon in, in terms of poetry or of myth because there are layers to our experience that are too deep for uh, just everyday words or, or go far beyond logic. But we might uh, and probably will later on speak more about being with the dead and with the dying and, and um, and also with, the, with those who have died, I think that the whole area of burial and so forth and, 
and service after the death. That's also a very important area that we'll probably be talking about today, uh, tonight. But uh, I thought I sh still share with you a few thoughts about uh, where my own dying is uh, experienced right now, because so many of us uh, have to die many, many times uh, in the course of our lives and practice dying. I think this is very important. That is really what it means to practice living, to practice dying. Uh, and my own uh, dying right now is that I'm getting old. Uh, we are all getting older and 24 hours a day, but uh, at some periods of our life we are noticing that more than at other periods of our life. <laughs> it comes in spurts. It, 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 I guess it goes with birthdays or something like that. And uh, there is something very sad about it. And I think that is where we should start. I think that there are some other areas that are wonderful and life-giving and, and encouraging, but there is a real sadness about it. And I, I somehow have the feeling that before we have exposed ourselves to that sadness, we are not in a position to... Uh, to appreciate any other of the areas. And I think that sadness we should uh, uh, experience for ourselves when we, are, when we are dying and even when we are getting older. And there is a very short poem by Yeats that I like very much in this context and I would like to read it to you. <clears throat> it's called Girl's Song. I went out alone to sing a song or two, my fancy on a man and you know who. Another came in sight that on a stick relied to hold himself upright. I sat and cried. And that was all my song. When everything is told, saw I an old man young a young man old. Now that's one side of the thing. There's a, another side, and, and I would also like to uh, share a poem that I like about that with you, and that's quite different. <laughs> and I hope that someone in the audience will be able afterwards to tell me by whom this poem is, because that has happened once before that I copied a poem and I, I didn't copy <laughs> the name of the author, and then I used it for years, and always with a somewhat bad conscience until some, somebody pointed out to me finally, after about three or four years, by whom it was. So this one I've also been using a bit, and it's by an oriental, by a Chinese poem, poet. And uh, it's a translation, and I don't know who it is. So, with all these Buddhists in the audience, somebody ought to know. <laughs> it's called Poem on Losing One's Teeth. <laughs> Last year, I lost an incisor, and this year, a molar. And now, half a dozen more drop out all at once. And that's not the end of it either. <laughs> the rest are all loose. 
and there won't be an end till they are all gone. The first one, I thought, what a shame, what an obscure gap, what an obscene gap. Two or three, I was falling apart, almost, you might say, a death door. Before, when one loosened, I'd quake and hope wildly it wouldn't. The gaps made it hard to chew, and a loose tooth, I'd rinse my mouth gingerly. Then, when at last it would fall out, it felt like a mountain collapsing. By now, I've got used to it. Nothing earth-shaking. I've still twenty. Twenty left, though I know one by one they'll all go. But at one tooth per year, it will take them two decades. And once they're gone, will it matter? They went one by one, or all in a single disaster? <laughs> and the last stanza is, this is a poem I chanted and wrote down to startle my wife and children. <laughs> now, I didn't write it down, I uh, didn't read it to you to startle you in that sense, but I think this is something that we should consider, and this may also, as we are now beginning to share about our experiences, be an important part of, uh, of uh, our sharing. I, I hope it will be in my own interest that we are not just talking about other people dying, but about our own process of dying and how we experience that. And, and I tackled it on a rather superficial level of, of losing your teeth, or feeling a little tired and so forth. But of course we are aware that there are much deeper levels and uh, that Death is so important and so interesting for us because we are dying from the moment we are born. And uh, therefore, we can learn so much for tho from those who are much closer uh, to it or whom we can be with when they are dying. So, uh, I hope that many of these topics that we have just touched upon and just sort of opened up uh, can come into our discussion this evening and I think for, uh, the plan is that for a time the two of us will uh, still share with, with Frank as a moderator or so and then as soon as possible we will open it up for your own uh, sharing and I'm very much looking forward to that. Mostly I'm going to watch. David, I was thinking about your story about being with your mom and uh, caring for her during that time. And I wondered what it was like for you to step out of the monastic life and step into that role of, of caring for your mother. And then 
What was it like and how did you work with the grief of that, of that whole experience? Well, my mother uh, died in the hospital. Um, she uh, was diagnosed uh, to have a very uh, rapid kind of leukemia, uh, rapidly advancing kind of leukemia, uh, and also uh, didn't get the right medication because one doesn't know enough about leukemia. And though she had, uh, by a, a coincidence actually, uh, some of the world capacities on leukemia and on the particular kind of leukemia that she had because they had a meeting in that hospital where she was. Uh, there were people from uh, all over the world, a few doctors, and so she had really the very, very best that one could possibly have ha hoped for, uh, but she uh, got a kind of medication that um, uh, made it worse, as the doctors admitted then, and they just said, well, we tried our best, but we don't know. And then, uh, so it went very fast. And that meant that uh, even if it was two months uh, or that time, she was in the hospital. And because I was scheduled for a long uh, lecture tour and had to cancel it, the first part of it, and then uh, it became obvious that all of it had to be canceled, I had no other commitments and was free to spend the time with her. And that's how I, I could be with her. And since both my brothers who were also there every day and, and lived in the area, um, uh, but they were busy and they had their families and they had their work and so forth, so they could only come a little bit. But I was practically there full time uh, since I had nothing else to do. And at first my mother, actually until almost the very, very end, and my mother was uh, still uh, perfectly clear in her head, and um, and I could read together. We read a few books together, and we could talk and we spend the time together. Now, a hospital, as you you all know, is not exactly a very happy environment. And even though this was a a nice suburban uh, hospital, uh, relatively small, and the, the nurses were awfully nice. I kind of felt that it was about as nice as one could hope on a hospital to be uh, nowadays, but still it was a, a somewhat difficult environment. Uh, the, the, the people were very nice, but the, 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 the environment was very impersonal, and, and uh, pre precisely at a time like that one, one needs Somewhat, 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 much more of a personal touch and a personal mind. So I tried to supply this as, as far as possible. Uh, but even though externally it was so completely different uh, an uh, environment from the monastery, uh, also with a lot of noise, unfortunately hospitals are such noisy places, um, um, it, that, that it was possible to make the daily routine there, because I had all the time, really a mindfulness routine, you know. Actually, everything helped it, uh, everything encouraged it, and so forth. And since, in my understanding, that is really the most important thing, that is what, why we set up a, a monastic environment to practice mindfulness, 
any environment that helps you uh, practice uh, mindfulness is a monastic environment. So in its own way, uh, it, it was helpful. Um, I think it was uh, not as the environment as such helpful, but as the particular situation that you are there with your mother who is preparing to die. That, that was really the incentive, not the, the looks or any other aspects of the environment. And my mother um, was a very religious person and was actually a, a monastic oblate that is sort of a, an extended member of the monastic community and uh, made very clear uh, arrangements, uh, very careful arrangements that she wanted to be uh, buried in the monastery and buried in the Benedictine habit. And the oblates have the right to be buried in the habit and so forth and in a very, very simple coffin, and for heaven's sakes, not this thing that's plush inside. <laughs> so we, we had the hardest time finding a plain wooden coffin, and fortunately, finally, someone had the good idea to check with the Hasidic Jews. And so my mother was buried in a Hasidic uh, coffin, and from a Hasidic funeral home. <laughs> And that was very beautiful. I'm, I'm sure she, would have, she was very happy with it and would have liked that very much. Um, so we, we did not um, pray together, in, in, uh, not the formal monastic prayers or anything like that. We did pray a little bit every day together. But when uh, Mother was well, she would pray a good part of the monastic chants and prayers and so forth every day. But at that time, she wasn't well enough to do that. But uh, we prayed every day together, and uh, as I say, that wasn't the important thing. And all those bells and chants and, and, and other typically monastic routine was not the important thing. But the, uh, the, the mindfulness that we could, and, and she grew in mindfulness, of course, and uh, fortunately because she was not uh, in a coma, uh, and, and so we could do that together. And then the grieving in this context, you may have more questions about it in details or so, but the grieving in this context was, was then for me to go back to the monastery and there to have then the proper environment to um, remember the things that we had done together. And this remembering seems to me a very, very important part, uh, to remember, to remember what we did together. And we, we also did that, of course, together still. We would remember all the wonderful things that we had done together in the course of life and so forth, and remember people and so But then when somebody dies, to remember that person and to remember, and to allow, I allowed myself to cry many times with all the things that reminded me of her. And uh, then to feel her presence, because there is really, a, I've heard this from many other people, so I'm sure many of you have this experience, but before you have had it yourself, it you hear it and it doesn't really sink in, but uh, I, I immediately experienced, uh, after my mother's death, a new kind of presence and, in a way, uh, uh, an easier presence. There's always something when we are with people whom we are fond of uh, that also separates us. 
we are together, but because I am you and uh, and uh, I am myself and not you, there's there's some separation. But when somebody dies, then that separation somehow is not there anymore. But the presence remains, um, and that is a is a very consoling thing. And I know that uh, even children experience that when long before they can express it. I did not have personally the, the experience of, of uh, somebody close to me dying when I was small. My great-grandmother, uh, at any rate, that, that did not impress me that much at all. But uh, I know a little boy, and now he's not that little anymore, he's still small, but when he was about five or so, uh, a neighbor died, it wasn't even a relative, it was a neighbor whom he called Uncle Dickie, and who was sort of a kind of uh, surrogate grandfather for this little boy. And uh, soon after this uh, neighbor died, a day or two, uh, the little boy was sitting perfectly silent and said to his mother, can you hear me singing? And she said, no. And he said, of course you cannot hear me because I'm singing for Uncle Dickie. That's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, there's a dimension that we experience that uh, enriches our lives. We, when I was traveling in India a, a, a few years ago with my wife, um, she got frightened at one point. We were visiting an ashram in, on Mount Abu and she felt like she was going to die. And she didn't know why, but it was frightening. And then she went to sleep that night and had a dream of her brother. Uh, and she saw him very, very sick and throwing up some terrible yellow something or other. And then later on that evening, she woke up and she went back to sleep. She had a dream of him and in her earlier years, she had had two kind of guardian figures that came in her dreams, Native American elders they looked like. Um, and in the end, dream that morning, uh, there were three elders in that dream, one who resembled her brother. This seemed very strange to her, as you could imagine. Um, and then, four days later, we received a telegram that he had died on the day that she had had those dreams. Um, and at first, and he had died in a way that the dreams portrayed as well. And at first, um, it was very terrible, especially the early dream and the, the suffering of the body. Um, but there was such a clear impression of his presence, his being, his spirit in some way, being now one of the guardians for her own life and caring, that it left that whole other piece that you speak of mm-hmm. and, and still has to this day. We're, we're linked in ways that are much beyond the physical body. It seems that we frequently try to push this grief away in our lives losses of our lives we are continually trying to push away. And yet it seems for you, David, and perhaps you might have something to say about this, Jack, that it has been the place where the heart truly seems to open. 
the pathway to the, it's what seems to tear open the heart. And I, I certainly see this in my work with people who are dying and their families. And I wonder if we might talk about the, the wonderful advantages of grief here and how it might become our ally. The advantage of grief? Hmm. Or, or shall we say how it is our ally? May I read something? I've read it to the meditation classes I teach recently, so a few of you will have heard it, but it's not so much about dying, and yet it is very much. Uh, um, it's a couple of pages, so... It's about someone's meditation retreat. I served as a medical corpsman in the Marine Ground Forces in the early days of the Vietnam War, says this person, um, in the mountain provinces, and our casualty rates were high as well as those of the villagers that we were permitted to treat when we had time. It had been eight years since my return from Vietnam when I attended my first meditation retreat. At least twice a week for all those years I had sustained the same recurring nightmares common to many combat veterans, dreaming I was back there, facing the same dangers, witnessing the same incalculable suffering, waking suddenly alert, sweating, scared, over and over and over again. At the retreat, the nightmares did not occur during sleep. They filled the mind's eye during the day, at sittings, during walking meditation, at meals, Horrific wartime flashbacks were superimposed over a quiet redwood grove at the retreat center. Sleeping students in the dormitory became body parts strewn around a makeshift morgue on the DMZ. What I gradually came to see was that as I relived these memories as a 30-year-old spiritual seeker, I was also enduring for the first time the full emotional impact of experiences which as a 20-year-old medic, I was simply unprepared to withstand. I began to realize that the mind was yielding up memories so terrifying, so life-denying, so spiritually eroding, that I'd ceased to be aware of them, that I was still carrying them around. I was, in short, beginning to undergo a profound catharsis by openly facing that which I had most feared, and therefore had most strongly suppressed. At the retreat, I was also plagued by a more current fear that having released the inner demons of war, I would be unable to control them, that they would now rule my days as they had my nights. But what I experienced instead was just the opposite. The visions of slain friends and dismembered children, the horrors gradually gave way to the other half-remembered scenes from that time and place, the entrancing, intense beauty of a jungle forest a thousand different shades of green, and a fragrant breeze blowing over beaches so white and dazzling they seemed carpeted by diamonds. And what arose at this retreat for the first time was a deep sense of compassion for my past and present self 
compassion for this idealistic young would-be doctor forced to witness the most unspeakable obscenities of which humankind is capable, and for the haunted veteran who could not let go of memories he could hardly acknowledge he carried. Since that retreat, the compassion has stayed with me through practice and continued inner understanding. It's grown to sometimes encompass those around me as well when I'm not too self-conscious to let it do so. And while the memories have stayed also with me, the nightmares have not. The last of these sweating nightmares happened in silence, fully awake, somewhere in Northern California over ten years ago. It's a very wonderful man who wrote this piece, and to me it's really about grieving. It's about taking the time finally to let himself face a kind of loss and a kind of sorrow and a disillusionment and a pain and things that maybe are beyond even what each of us face, but I'm not sure it's really beyond, I think, in the loss of those that we love and each of our lives. There's very, very deep sorrow. And in letting himself do it, there came a kind of sweetness and compassion as well, which I know this person very well. He's become a wonderful person to be around and a real inspiration. And that's remarkable. I mean, to be able to face that is very wonderful and, and difficult. It seems to me that in this lies really the answer to how grieving uh, opens the heart, because we tend to live out of fearfulness and out of cowardice and so forth. We tend to live closing ourselves off to whole areas of uh, reality. And uh, when uh, reality breaks in in an unwanted way then that causes our grief uh, and yet uh, if we open ourselves then to that grief we are embracing a greater reality and the more reality we embrace uh, the more uh, we belong to all and we experience the, the blessing of belonging to all and not only all humans but our reality and mm-hmm. our things and our plants and, and we, are, we find our way home by closing by coming out of this little exile that we create for ourselves by, by closing ourselves off to what we think is unpleasant reality or is, uh, is life denying reality the moment we open ourselves with that to that grief that is necessarily there we also open ourselves not only to the uh, dismembered children, but to the beauty of the jungle forest and, and all that, as it was said here. Sometimes people will come and ask, or, or I'll feel it in myself, because grieving is difficult, and it's painful, and it's hard. Well, how can I let go? Isn't there some easier way to let go than having to grieve, having to feel all of that? And what has become clear in my own learning to let go is that that is actually what grieving is. The grieving itself is the letting go. That is the letting go into the sorrow or into the loss or into the acceptance of feelings that are there and that are true for us. 
And in that sense, grief is, as you say, it's a process of acceptance of, of what there is. And that, that's what touches the heart, what opens it. Uh, you mentioned that the grieving is a process, and you mentioned letting go and, and um, uh, various other uh, words that you use. They seem to me like almost stages. Would you think that there are stages to grieving where you start out with just pain, and that's all, and it leads you to a deeper sense of uh, belonging to all and, and to actually, eventually, to a deeper communion, hmm. a healing, I guess, I would say, a wholeness uh, and a healing. That, that's a very beautiful description. I think in some way the stages, as I experience them, are really the strategies that come um, to not quite feel it yet. And there are layers of strategies. I mean, the initial one is denial. It's, I d- this relationship isn't ending, this person isn't sick, this is, this is not changing. Um, and then when there's some sense that that strategy just can't hold anymore, then you get a little more uh, kind of subtle strategy of anger or bargaining. Well, if I do this and do that, as, as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross described so well. Um, uh, but what I've actually experienced in grieving is not that it's a linear process at all, that you go from one to another to another and finally there's this deep acceptance or communion. It's a lot more like some bubbling inside and in a moment you may have this just terrible pain and in another moment great sadness and half an hour later you may be again pretending that it's not true. It Mm. didn't happen, it won't happen and there's denial and then a little while later bubbles up this rage at God or the world um, and then comes a moment of acceptance and you say well finally I've accepted it and then the next morning you wake up and you can't believe it again mm-hmm. and there seems to be this it's what one sees as well in meditation there's this kind of inner working over that the heart does it's kind of a digestion of the heart kind of like having the heart is your stomach to digest this mm-hmm. in some very strange way. Mm-hmm. And finally coming in its, in its own time. Usually when people come and ask about grieving who have done some grieving, they'll say, I've grie- it feels like I've grieved this enough. Why is it still coming? Um, and my own, my own sense is generally that's about halfway point in the grieving. It's like, I've done enough already. Do I really have to feel this? And, well, you've done pretty good, you know, and there's some, there's some place in the heart or in the being that's still not quite accepting or that's asking, put it that way, to make it not judgmental at all. It's just human life that's asking to be felt more deeply, to be forgiven more fully, to be allowed in some way more truly. I have a thought about grieving that I cannot too clearly express. I have never tried to express in this way, but I think it is worth to grapple with, and uh, maybe you can help me. But um, somehow I have the feeling that often the grieving is so hard and is so uh, difficult uh, because we, we... do it too late. We wait too long to grieve. 
we grieve uh, only when we can when there is absolutely no other possibility anymore but to grieve <laughs> and so uh, and also in a, when the situation is so that we are weakened and, and not at our best and cannot deal with it as well as we could otherwise so uh, I had often thought of that uh, before uh, when my mother was still very well but she was getting up in age uh, that I, I felt something that I didn't quite understand what it was and I, I came to the conclusion that I was grieving for her I was grieving uh, losing her that can be a very uh, life-giving part of uh, a relationship that can be a very uh, they can make you very much more alive at, at every moment and then actually uh, I thought uh, that this could be in, uh, that when I noticed how uh, much more I was present to her and how much I enjoyed her being the time that I was with her and I wasn't very much with her because I was in the monastery so those times were rather short but we, we always managed to do nice things together uh, then I thought well this, this can be applied to other situations too and uh, actually everything that you experience at every moment you can in, include in it you're grieving for its being the last time because in that way you will never see it again and so you can get yourself into a kind of practice for letting go and for the pain of letting go that, that pain is always there but that pain can be life-giving it can be part of the joy I think when something moves us to tears of joy uh, we call them tears of joy because they are not clearly attributable to suffering but I think that very often there is, the, 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 there is this element of, of grieving in it when, when something moves us to tears of joy. Do you think so? Yes, I do. And even in the best, the most, the sweetest thing, which is wonderful, there's that little thought that comes, well, how much longer is it going to last, you know? <laughs> or how can I hold on? Or that recognition that whatever is sweet and beautiful also is subject to that change. Yeah. One psychologist friend at Harvard who also teaches Buddhist meditation did a big study of meditation for uh, his thesis and the basic premise that he came up with in describing spiritual life was that it was a process of learning how to grieve, which is to say learning how to let go um, outwardly of things that one can't possess or control and inwardly and when we hear that in this culture, it, it's, it's scary, it's weird. What do you mean to let go? And this is a culture of accumulating and getting and standing on and having. Um, and it seems negative at first without some experience. But the actual experience of it is, is really more alive as one can let go of yesterday or let go of grudges or let go of difficulties with people or expectations. It allows you to see someone's face and their eyes and their heart in a new way. And letting go is, is in fact, the most alive thing that you could do. I was at the hospital the other day and a nurse asked me a question. She said, I understand this, the suffering of grief. And I understand we wouldn't want to take that away from someone. But what about physical suffering. What about pain? 
I don't understand you Buddhists. What is this about pain? Is this just some sadomasochistic uh, experience? I mean, what, what's the possible value of physical pain? Hmm. Is there anybody here who doesn't have it? Please raise your hand. You're excused. You get your $10 back. So the first immediate value is in being alive, in living, there is pain. And to the extent that we live in a society or we live inwardly in a way that fears it and runs away and closes off in our culture, you know, we have air conditioning and, and heat and cars to keep us perfectly comfortable and all these things to shield us um, from the unshieldable, from disappointment or loss or change or pain. Um, it doesn't work. I mean, it helps in very minor ways. To the extent that we fear pain and run away, to that extent can we not be alive? We have to spend our time avoiding experience of a whole category and holding on to what's comfortable. So what pain is useful for in some way is the inevitable, is that it will be there. And to learn to work with it, not to create it if you don't have to have it, wonderful, but to learn to work with it is really the same thing as learning to keep your heart open or learning to be present or learning to live. If you can't deal with pain, if you're afraid of it, um, you won't really be able to let another person in in an intimate way because of the fear of loss. You won't be able to enjoy something fully because of that fear. Um, you won't even be able to live in your own body so fully. So, there's a, there's a quote, a sentence from Oscar Wilde when he was put in prison for being a homosexual not so long ago, the turn of the century. And he wrote a letter out that said, the trouble with prisons is not that they break hearts, dash. Hearts are meant to be broken. But like their own walls, turn the hearts of those within to stone. And it's an amazing thing to say, hearts are meant to be broken. Which is that if you want to feel if that, that aliveness, which is our birthright, which is really our truth, um, is to come, then it's to feel the joys and the sorrows and the beauty and the loss and the pain and the pleasure, the 10,000 things equally in some way. And so that's the place to, to live. We invite you to continue this program with Jack Cornfield and Brother David Standerass on tape two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.